Our scripture passage this morning is from Matthew 6, uh, verses 9 through 13. You can find it in your, in your, uh, the black Bible in your pew there, or chair. It's on page 811, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm assuming that it's, <clears throat> that it's because it's a normal part of my life, but I'm always fascinated <clears throat> to hear about people's fear of public speaking. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld used to have a bit a while back where he would talk about how people's number one fear in life was public speaking. Number two was death, which he would say, that means that at a funeral, <laughs> you would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. And I think about that, though, because last week we were thinking about Jesus' instruction about learning to do our religious piety, not to be seen by people. And now we want to focus on this question of praying. But as soon as we do that, we start to realize praying is really, really hard. I would even suggest praying is actually a little more difficult even than preaching. Uh, now, for those of you that are scared of public speaking, you might think, how could that be? <laughs> but I heard one preacher unpack it this way when he said, he said, there's lots of times when I'll get up and I'm preaching and I kind of start rambling sort of back and forth. And I've preached some pretty awful sermons in my day, but I've never in the midst of preaching forgotten that I was preaching, right? He said, but how many times have I been knelt in prayer, unpacking my thoughts before God and some random thought will go crossing my brain and I completely forget that I'm even praying. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? So prayer is very difficult, but it's also vital. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus isn't just saying, if you pray, he's saying, when you pray. He assumes it's central. So much so that John Calvin would say, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. In other words, there is no greater demonstration of the fact that you believe than that you pray to God. But even with reminders like that, it still seems hard sometimes to focus and pray. I was really helped by a little booklet that uh, Sorgan Fry gave me a couple of years ago uh, by Michael Reeves titled, uh, modestly enough, Prayer. And there's this quote that really struck out at me in that book. And when he says, when you default to thinking about prayer as an abstract activity, a thing to do, the tendency is to focus on the prayer as an activity, which makes it really boring. Instead, we should focus on the one to whom you're praying. Reminding yourself of who you're coming before is a great help against distraction, and it changes the prayer. What he's saying is, is that you can enhance your prayer by remembering who you're talking to or reminding yourself of the one who you're praying to. In, in his book on prayer, Tim Keller gives a great example of what we're saying when he says, you could imagine an eight-year-old uh, little boy who's playing with a truck that suddenly breaks. Well, of course, he's disconsolate, and he, and he cries out to his parents to fix it. But as he's crying, his father says to him, hey, look, a distant relative that you've never met has just died and left you $100 million. What's going to be the reaction of the child? He's just going to cry louder until his truck is fixed. In other words, the child doesn't have a cognitive capacity enough to realize what the truth is about his situation. He doesn't know. All he can focus on is the broken truck. But, they, but if there was some way to wrap his mind around the enormity of his real situation, 
how different his conversation with his parents would be, right? All this to say is Jesus is framing this whole thing in such a way that this, this instruction in prayer so that we can know who it is we're praying to. So when he introduces this prayer of what we come to know as the Lord's Prayer, he's not giving us what to pray as much as he's giving us how to pray. By the way, every commentator makes mention that the Lord's Prayer is a little bit of a misnomer. This is not a prayer that Jesus would ever pray because Jesus would never pray, forgive us our debts, because Jesus never sinned. Rather, the disciples' prayer is probably a better term. But you don't change the name of things that have been like it has for 2,000 years, right? Here's the point, though. Jesus assumes that you need to be taught how to do this. That's the assumption. Jesus is confronting our hypocrisy in prayer, you know, that, that when we do it just so people can hear how spiritual we are, so he walks us through how to do it. He gives us a structure, as it were, a framework for how to pray. And so for our purposes, we need to see that Jesus is connecting the good life to praying in such a way that avoids that kind of hypocrisy. And he does so by giving us three headings. What's interesting is, and oftentimes a bit surprising for people is, this prayer divides very neatly into two sections. The first section is the things we pray Godward, if you will, the vertical dimension. The second half are those that are prayed horizontally, the manward situation. We'll talk about that next week. But for our purposes today, I want to go through three ideas. Number one, the object of prayer. Number two, the posture of prayer. And then finally, the topic of prayer. Look at that first one, the object of prayer. First thing Jesus says is we begin by saying, Our Father in heaven. And look, you have to understand that from the outset, the very first words Jesus says would have been offensive to that early listener. For example, if you go back through the Old Testament, in all 39 books of the Old Testament, you only get God being referred to as Father about 14 times. And in almost all of those times, it's God as the Father of nations, not as individuals. Well, compare that to the Gospels, that in four Gospels, the word Father is used more than 60 times, and every instance in reference to an individual's relationship to God. You see the point? Jesus is showing us that the difference between Christianity and every other world religion is that when you come to know Jesus, your creator can be your father. That's the difference. If you think about it, this kind of makes, this makes sense if you, if, if you put it in practical terms. If you walk up to a stranger on the street, there's really only so much that you can get away with saying to someone, right? Hey, uh, do you have the time? Or, hey, I'm lost. Can you give me directions? One thing you would never do to a stranger is to walk up to them and say, hey, can, can you not talk about that time a couple years ago when my dad passed away? You would never say that. The relationship doesn't sustain that. But Jesus is saying that the relationship between you and my Father is such that if you want to pursue the good life, it'll only happen on the familiarity of family terms. If God is your creator, which he is, and if he is your king, which he is, and that's all he is, there's no reason to be drawn to him. But if he's your daddy, <laughs> then prayer is easy. When, when, when Jesus called God his father, people would have been shocked by that. And no less shocking for us, I think, when you realize that there's really two ways to relate to God, is there not? You can relate to God in terms of a, a business relationship, or you can relate to it as a family relationship. You can relate to God as a boss, or you can relate to him as a daddy. 
The illustration that popped into my mind on this was, was when, when my children were much smaller. Uh, every now and then my wife Ginger would bring them to campus uh, to see me in my office. And more times than not, I would be meeting with a student when they would come in. And of course, there, there would be no knock. The door would just swing open, bound open, burst, and in would walk. Uh, let, let, I don't know why, Anna Grace, I've got you associated with this one. You're the one who I've got associated with this. She would just kind of come bounding in, walking in, and she would hop right up on my lap and just kind of sit there. And I always remember the sort of vaguely smug look that she would give to the person sitting in my office as if to say, no, 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 this is exactly where I belong. <laughs> why? She could get away with that because of the relationship that we had. It was unique. And Jesus is saying that the fatherhood of God is the lens through which I want you to consider all of your relationship with me. How you pray, therefore, is this great temperature gauge to know exactly whether you understand that or not. You ever thought of this? In many ways, your prayers not getting answered will let you know your relationship to God, won't it? When you've been praying very earnestly or you've longed for something very earnestly and you don't get it, how does that make you react? Do you get cold? Do you get anxious? If you're prideful, you look and say, I just don't understand. Christianity didn't work for me. I prayed to God and I didn't get any of it. I think all of it's, you know, garbage. And you walk away. The, the, the sort of insecure people look and say, who am I to pray to God? You have no idea how unworthy I am. I couldn't dare approach him in any context. And therefore they never pray. In other words, when you don't get prayers answered, it'll let you know whether you're relating to God as an orphan or whether you are as a child, that's different. Which are you? But notice Jesus also, when he presents God as Father, balances it out with an equal sort of a, a, a idea. Because it's very easy, I think, and especially in American Christianity, to when we hear this concept of God being our Father, which we all just love, to kind of assume that there's a sappy sentimentalism that we're supposed to draw from that. Oh, y'all, that's so precious. Instead, what Jesus says is, is, this is our Father, yes, but he is our Father in heaven. Only if you grasp that can you balance that particular line of Jesus' closeness. thought of this one as well. Can you remember that time when you were a child when you crossed the line? You know what I'm talking about? Where you were just kind of, you were kidding, right? It was all a joke, you thought. But very quickly, and you knew it immediately as soon as you saw the expression on your parents' face, that you moved over, moved over from being kind of funny um, to being uh, disrespectful. And you knew it because your father looked at you and said something like, you will not talk to your father that way. <laughs> you crossed the line. In other words, there's got to be a balance between a childlike affection for God as father, but always held in the knowledge that he is high and lifted up. But if we can get both of those together, I think it brings us into a unique place of sanity that we wouldn't have otherwise. It reminded me of Daniel chapter 4, verse 28, about King Nebuchadnezzar. When, when he came up out of his own insanity, he said this, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do you hear the gravity? You see? So yes, you need the closeness, but you need the gravity as well. And when we do that, we get sanity be, to be restored. Once you get a sense of the awe-inspiring omnipotence of the God of the universe, 
and then combine that with his closeness and his nearness as a friend and a father, you suddenly have a sense of sanity in that balance. We have him high and lifted up, yet near as a father. He is transcendent and he's imminent. He is majestic and he's tender. And that opening line, our Father in heaven, swings the doors wide open to that. Okay, so that's the object of prayer, right? Secondly, though, I want you to see the posture of our prayer. This one's big, too, because Jesus says the next thing we're to pray is, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Well, to be hallowed simply means to treat something as if it's sacred or as if it's ultimate. In other words, it's to make something your, your prime concern. What you hallow is what you consider to be most crucial to you, most holy or set apart. It, it, it's the supreme beauty, the, 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 the total aim of your life. And Jesus is saying from the outset of your prayer, you have to establish this early on or else it's going to be, you're going to be in the wrong posture. The question is, though, is how does this prayer get us there? Well, go back up to verse 6 in, Hebrew, uh, in, in Matthew 6 here. Because Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Interesting. Why does Jesus suddenly begin talking about what we do when we are in secret? Well, I think it's because that's the best place to find out whether you're praying to Jesus in the right way. Ask yourself this question. When is it that I feel moved to pray? What are those circumstances? Well, if you think about it, most people pray when their ultimate source of life, their ultimate treasure is, at, is, is threatened or is at stake. In verse 5, Jesus explains that the religious people, they treasure the public acclaim that they get for looking like religious people. And Jesus says, that's going to be your reward. That's what you're going to get. But what about other prayers? Do I ever pray when things are not going bad? Do I ever sort of only, do I only restart my devotional life when suddenly my life is falling down around me? Well, in order to know what your main concern is, you've got to look to see what you do in secret. What does your mind drift to when it doesn't have anything else to busy itself with? What about your daydreams? Where do your daydreams take you, especially when you're feeling threatened? Maybe a new house? Maybe a dream vacation? Maybe a, maybe a better relationship? Adoring children, financial success, new hobbies, maybe fame. Because if what you adore isn't God, we're only going to pray when that thing is in jeopardy. And our prayers can become nothing more than an expression of our own idolatry. And so Jesus says, no, we begin by saying, God, we let your name be hallowed. What we rarely pray for is the simple pleasure of being alone with God. And the reason why is because we don't see his presence as being a treasure at all. This kind of prayer helps us pause and consider, what is it that I really adore? And if it isn't God and something else, then maybe I've got some thinking to do. What I do in secret tells me who my God really is. But a Christian prays because her ultimate treasure has become God. She delights in thinking about him. She's found something captivating, something unfathomable, something even inexpressible in God. And I'm granting the fact that for many of us here, we think to ourselves when we hear stuff like that, look, preacher boy, I realize that it's your job to get all cooked up about these things, but it simply does not occur to me 
a practical-minded person to get all touchy-feely when it comes to thinking about God. And maybe in the back of your mind you think to yourself, I honestly could not imagine something that would motivate me to have that kind of affection to the God of the universe. Hold that thought. Because Jesus tells us what might do that, and it's his name. Hallowed be your name. Now just for a second, name in the Bible doesn't just mean that thing that designates you from all the other people's. Your name is your reputation. Your name is what you have become to be known as. Psalm 9, 10 says, Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Oh, did you hear that? If you know his name, you will forever trust him. And if you forever trust him, he'll be the first place you go to for joy. And you want to know why? Because he was always there. And it was years ago when I had a conversation with a young lady. She was a freshman in our ministry at the University of Memphis. And we were having a conversation. She was one of these very typical people who grew up in church all of her life. I mean, she, was, she sang in the choir. She was, a, she was kind of a minor celebrity in the youth group. And she sat across me in, in, in her freshman year, and she was like, you know, Les, I really wrestle with this idea. Like, do I really love God? I mean, like, love God. And it was an honest moment for her, I thought. But I remember thinking to myself, wow, you're 18 and this is just now kind of occurring to you. Seems like this might have come up before. Do I really love God? Here's the point, though. The psalmist is saying that if you know God's reputation, you're going to trust him because he's never forsaken those who who seek him. In other words, to delight in who God is is to have a knowledge that he is the one who will never forsake me. Look, go through the Psalms and you will find, you'll find it very difficult to find a Psalm where the writer does not use this little Hebrew word, hesed. You have it translated in your Old Testament as unfailing love. That love is this, is this binding, this unrelenting love that rescues you over and over and over again. And every, every prayer... Every person who prays gets fixated on that. And it's a safe haven. It's a bit of a morbid example. But in January of 2019, a writer for The Atlantic, Michael Aaron, did an article on what people say in the last moments of their life. It's really fascinating. And he said that for women it's one thing, but he says for men it's always different. This was amazing. He said said, almost everyone who is a male who who lies dying in a hospital, starts calling out for mommy or mama with their last breath. Again, I realize it's a morbid thought, but my question is, why is that the case? Is it possible that the reason is, is at the nadir, at the very end, that the human mind is searching for any place where they might know rest, where they might have real affection, where they might find something that was solid. And you know all they have? They have a memory trace of being in the arms of their mother, safe as they could possibly be, with the affection that only a mother can give. (laughs) My dad used to make the joke, you know, son, you've got a face that only a mother could love. What does that mean? He was joking, I hope. What does that mean? Of course our mother loves us. She's always the place I can go to. She's always the only safe place. And when men reach the nadir, they cry out for their mamas. What's interesting is Jesus had a similar experience in his death. 
Everybody knows that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks up and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is when he's experiencing the alienation of his father. What's interesting, though, is that is a quote. You know that, don't you? That's a quote from Psalm 22. And so what we assume is that Jesus on the cross is leafing through Psalm 22, praying it in his mind to get him through the cross. But we rarely read the rest of that psalm. Because when it gets to verse 9, it says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Our Lord Jesus is going through these on the moment on the cross. In other words, he looks and finds what human beings feel all the time, that we long for the same affection that draws someone to their mother. That's it. That's the thing. What would possibly draw me to God as a delight in of itself? The same affection that would draw me in the midst of trouble to my mother. That's the joy. Hallowed be your name. Is there any praise in my heart for God? And if there is, is it attached to his constancy, to his unfailing love? So that's the posture of prayer. There's the object of prayer and the posture of prayer. But thirdly, I want you to notice the topic of prayer. This one's obviously a very big one because that verse 10 is power packed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look, in the cadence of our reciting it, reciting it on Sunday mornings, we break those up, but it's actually one petition. Your kingdom come, namely, by your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, now what does this mean? Well, Jesus is giving us a prayer to help us assure that our prayer is not just being prayed for show's sake. And so therefore, you're going to have to pray for the things that we know Jesus cares about. Does that make sense? And so he says, I want you to discuss this topic. What you need to pray for is for the advance of the kingdom. If you want to know what I'm about, it's about the advance of the kingdom. Now, as soon as we use that kind of lingo, we start doing Bible talk, and we got to explain what we mean. But I think there's two things we get from Jesus. We get the nearness of the kingdom and the priority of the kingdom. Because that's worded awkwardly, isn't it? Thy kingdom come. Why does he say it that way? Your kingdom come. We don't ever talk that way. What does he mean? Does he mean that his kingdom has come or is, or is coming in the future? And what exactly do we mean by that word kingdom? Well, we get a lot of help from a theologian by the name of Cornelius Plantiga, who wrote a little book called uh, Not the Way That It's Supposed to Be. And in that book, he begins to explain this fact that when, that, that when God created man, he was not only at peace with himself, but he was at peace with everything else around him. He knew a world without barriers, without conflict, without anxiety, without worry and fear and intimidation. And the Hebrew word that's used to describe that is the word shalom. Shalom means harmony. It means justice. It means, it means the way things are supposed to be. So when Adam, though, falls into sin, he did a whole lot more than just condemn all of his posterity to hell. He brought the entire world out of shalom. In every quarter of life, there began to be disintegration. Things lost their sense of wholeness. Adam decided that he wanted to be his own master. He wanted to be king in God's place. And from that moment on, all of creation, to some degree, was was subjected to frustration. Or the way the Bible will put it, the realm of earth 
was separated from the realm of heaven. There was separation. There was discontinuity. Well, suddenly, thousands of years later, a man shows up named Jesus who begins to talk like he's the true king. But he's come to set up the real kingdom. In other words, he's coming to bring back shalom. He's here to bring peace. And his vision is global. It has to do with the entire world. It's personal, which means it's going to start in every human heart. But then it's also organic in the sense that through those spiritually changed lives, not through the end of a gun or the end of a sword, he was going to transform every human institution until it was heaven on earth. That's the idea. The whole action of the Bible is the bringing back of heaven and earth. That's why we pray that. <laughs> Thy kingdom come, namely, that things may be on earth as they are in heaven, a reunification of all things. That's the goal. Here's the point, though. When you become a Christian, whether you want it or not, you now share a vision of things being on earth as they are in heaven. So, yes, the kingdom has arrived in Jesus, but it's not fully here yet, is it? And it's the commission of every Christian to begin to pray through the advancement of his kingdom. That's the topic of a Christian's prayers. Wherever we see disharmony, wherever we see injustice, wherever we see anything that is not as it's supposed to be, that is the topic of our prayers. That's what we busy ourselves with. But secondly, the kingdom is our only priority. You know, in verse 10, it has that famous phrase, thy will be done. It's really interesting that that's the, there will be a second time when Jesus puts those words on his lips in Matthew 26, 42, when he's, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane facing this harrowing prospect of the cross. And in that moment, he prays because he doesn't want to do it. Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but thy will be done. What he does in that moment is he settles exactly who it is that's in charge of his life. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done, we're doing the exact same thing. We're deciding who it is that's going to run my life and who's going to be in submission. There's a missionary named Elizabeth Elliot, only passed away recently in the last couple of years, who wrote a novel called No Graven Images about a missionary who goes to South America to translate the Bible for South American Indians. Well, at the end of her story, the whole missionary effort is a complete disaster. Uh, the missionary lady accidentally injects the only person who speaks both English and Spanish and this obscure Indian dialect they were trying to translate it into. She injects him with the wrong medicine, and he dies. And the whole missionary effort tragically ends that way. And then the book ends. Not the feel-good read of the summer, right? But Elizabeth Elliot said it was so fascinating as she went around to speak to other people afterwards that they would come up to they'd be like, you know, honestly, I just didn't care for that book of yours at all because I do not believe that God would ever allow something like that to happen. No missionary would God ever treat that way. And she very calmly looked at him and said, but you do realize that my story was based upon a true story. It actually happened that way. And she would look at him and she would say, hey, let me ask you a question. Do you have a God of your own making? Do you have a God that's on your leash? Do you have a God who jumps through your hoops for you? 
Or do you have a God under whose control you are? Do you have a God that's wiser for you? Do you have a God that for some reason springs Peter out of prison but decides for some reason to leave John the Baptist in prison to get his head cut off? Do you have a, do you have a Play-Doh God that you're fashioning into your image? God doesn't always do what he wants us to do. Before the throne of God above is how we sing and exactly where we stand. So let's stand and sing our closing hymn. Before the throne strong and perfect clean.
you so much for joining us here this morning. We are always a delight to see you and have you be among us. We look forward to seeing you throughout the summer uh, as uh, things continue to progress and we finish up our study through the Sermon on the Mount. But in the meantime, receive a good word from the Lord. And now may the God who is our Father bless us as we carry his name into his good world. And may he grant us the privilege of seeing the advancement of his kingdom. And all God's people said, amen. Go in peace. Thank you.